0: Every so often, there's a movement in evangelical circles to get back to the model of the first century church. If you heard that from anybody, we need to go back to the first century church. Uh, last time I heard this, it was about 20 years ago. Uh, the last time it came up as a thing was about 20 years ago. And went hand-in-hand with the home church movement And I am not against the home church movement. So when I say that, you know, it went hand in hand here, that's not a slam against it. It's where we worship is not important. It's that we worship and who we worship that is. The point of this get back to the first century church idea is that the modern Christian church has gotten, oh, too celebrity pastor-driven that's not our problem that we have in this church, okay? But you, you know what I mean. There are very famous pastors throughout the Christian churches, and then some of them end up uh, going off the deep end, like the fellow from the Elevation Church in, I believe it's North Carolina, and things like that. But they've gotten also too political or too concerned about facilities. One of my favorite stories, when we were at... Uh, When I was at Twin Peaks Community Church, and one of my friends was the elder in charge of putting something on, we didn't have an audio-visual system. So we went to Community Baptist Church to borrow a system, and he sat down and talked to them, and they said, well this is going to have to go through this committee and then it's going to have to go through that committee and then it's going to have to go through the other committee and and we'll get back to, you you know, like two months, you know. So my friend went to Calvary Chapel and said, could we borrow, borrow your audio-visual system? And the pastor there said, man, you can have it tomorrow. You can keep it as long as you want. You can, and just a few he says, if we have one. So there's two... Two different models of somebody very glad to lend something and they don't even know if they have it, or another church who has it, but it's going to be two months down the line. Well, too concerned about facilities, too concerned about budgets. Uh, Maybe the modern church had too many programs, or maybe not enough programs. They'd become seeker-sensitive. Remember that, the secret sensitive church back in the early 90s uh, trying to lure people to come in and sit in your church that aren't Christians? John MacArthur thinks that's a poor idea. Or maybe the church was too old-fashioned. So the solution to this is to go back to the first century church, worship the way the apostles did. What could be wrong with any of that? And truly... I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with that, I'm saying let's go and look back and see what was going on in the first century church, and that's what we're looking at today. I'm going to read completely through Acts 2, 42 through 47, and then we'll go back and look at it piece by piece. Acts 2, 42 through 47. Remember, this is just after the, oh, it wasn't an altar call because of, Peter didn't give an altar call. He accused and convicted the Jews listening to him that day, and 3,000 were added to the rolls. And this is what comes immediately after that. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together And there's absolutely nothing wrong about that early church. I'm not here to criticize it. I'm here to look at it in context with today. So immediately after the miracles of Pentecost, the preaching of Peter and the conversion of the 3,000, here's what we have. The first thing this new church did, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, this is the most important thing in the life of the church: the apostles' teaching. You might think, "Well, that was so long ago," but we're still holding on to the apostles' teaching through what was written down and given to us in Scripture. Teaching was central because you have to remember many of the three thousand who were convicted of their sins and repented and were added to the church had no idea what Jesus Christ taught. They were convicted by the Old Testament prophecies through the demonstration of the uh, of Peter about Jesus life, ministry, death and resurrection. They didn't know anything about Christianity and indeed there was no guidebook. So they had to go with the teaching of the apostles because it was the apostles who lived with and were part of Jesus ministry who were entrusted with imparting the gospel truth to these new believers. And it's interesting to note, as some commentators did, that miraculously, supernaturally, among these 3,000 converts, there was no apparent buyer's remorse, no falling away from the church. They stuck. Those who were convicted and called by the Holy Spirit stayed with the church, even as the day of Pentecost drew more distant. These that the Holy Spirit called were made sure of their salvation. Now, you know, of course, that in the Reformed or Particular Baptist, sometimes I think we ought to call ourselves Particular Baptists. My daughter does, and she says she's eight, not this one, the one, And she says that she's a very particular Baptist. Uh, So the Reformed Baptist tradition is that preaching and teaching have always held the central position in our worship. Many of the greatest preachers, and I want to make sure you know this, many of the greatest preachers and teachers of the word were of the Reformed Baptist tradition. From John Gill very famous, very hard to read for me, my son-in-law, it's my son-in-law's favorite theologian, but John Gill, Benjamin Keach, and John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's process, Progress from the 1600s and 1700s were Reformed Baptists Charles Spurgeon, we all know was a Reformed Baptist Taylor Hudson and Andrew Fuller and uh, William Carey, who were the first Christian modern missionaries uh, to places like China and things like that were Reformed Baptists. We know that Arthur Pink, who wrote so many books that we still read today from, oh, the early 1900s to about 1935, was Reformed Baptist. Today we have people like um, Alistair Begg, uh, D.A. Carson, Mark Dever, uh, Wayne Grudem, John Piper, James White, Peter Masters, who now fills Spurgeon's old uh, uh, metropolitan uh, tabernacle. All of these people are in the Reformed Baptist tradition, and of course I say Reformed Baptist tradition because we are not a denomination, but we are an idea. We're a set of beliefs. SCARB, Southern California Area Reformed Baptist Association, these are people that we agree with. We're not a denomination. We join with them to do things. They keep us in line. It's a check on it's a check on the pastors in the church. But it is not a denomination. It's an idea. We put preaching and teaching first because the first church put teaching first. But it wasn't just the original twelve apostles who made it central. Because Paul the late-comer apostle who planted many of the subsequent churches also made it central in his pastoral letters to Timothy, who he considered his son in the faith. He said this in 1 Timothy chapter 4, he says to Timothy, personally, writing to him, even though, even though it became part of scripture, this was a letter not to the churches, but to Timothy. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected. If it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value... Godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hopes set on the living God who is the savior of all people especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things not let no one despise you for your youth But set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, devote yourself to them, so that all men see your progress." Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so you will save both yourself and your hearers. It's amazing. This is written 22 years after the foundation of the church and already false teaching has appeared in the church have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths, he says. These silly things are the Gnostic teaching mentioned in verses 1 through 5. Paul calls them greodes, which, which probably means nothing because I don't speak Greek very well, okay? But it looks like that. Which literally means old womanish. He says, don't listen to these old womanish or old wives' tales. It's funny how these things were around so long ago. In, in 2 Timothy 4, Paul continues on this theme. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Oh, my goodness, Paul was speaking directly to us. Gathering teachers for themselves, meaning not listening to the teachers who are teaching the truth, but gathering people who will tell you what you want to hear. I assure you that Bill and I take this responsibility with the utmost seriousness. Nothing is more important in our ministry than teaching the strict truth, keeping away from speculation, or unorthodox interpretations. You know, when you read the commentaries of people, of ancient people, of our forefathers and how diligent and careful they were in their in their looking at scripture i am proud to stand on their backs as i prepare messages it is not something good to find something new because to find something new is probably to be making something up at this point peter compares biblical teaching well, he, he calls biblical teaching the mother's milk of salvation in First Peter. Like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk that you may grow up to salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And finally, in a verse that always reminds me of R.C. Sproul who I, who I enjoyed even before I knew who R.C. Sproul was. <clears throat> Romans chapter 12. I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the renewal of our minds so that we can discern the will of God. So, the first distinctive of the first century church was the teaching of the apostles. The second, it says, and fellowship. Teaching and then fellowship. Fellowship is from the Greek word koinonia, which means Partnership or sharing. Partnership or sharing. Church is a partnership of all the believers attending. Neither Bill nor I metaphorically own this church. In fact, it was here long before Bill and I got here. And I truly hope that we don't act like it. We are not better Christians than anyone else here you all called the both of us to service here and at any time you or the Lord can end that. So, it is a partnership. We are all partners in the ministry of this church. Which is also the reason why Bill and I encourage all of you to embrace and join in on the ministry here. And we are not just partners with each other. In ministry, But in 1 John 1, the Apostle John says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. John MacArthur says that those who fail to participate in the life of the church are disobedient to the direct command of Scripture. As the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 10, verse 38, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more, as you see the day drawing near. We are made for each other in this church, which is why it hurts so much when people do leave from this body. I have to say that it does hurt. The next thing it says the church of Pentecost did was the breaking of bread. Now until Paul put an end to the selfish way the Corinthian church was celebrating communion, some 22 years later, Communion was part of a church fellowship meal. However, because of this passage dealing with the spiritual life of the church, most commentators think that this breaking of bread refers not to a communal meal but to the remembrance of of the Lord at the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is more important than probably we even take it. Uh, Bill and I both agree that uh, it should be a part of our weekly service, sometimes administered with a teaching, which Bill often gives, and sometimes just with the words of institution or the words from Paul in uh, 1 Corinthians. But don't doubt the seriousness of the celebration of communion. Anytime the Lord Jesus says do something, we probably should be doing it. This is my take on the whole thing. However, Scripture doesn't Robin and I were talking about this. Scripture doesn't tell us how often to take communion. Why don't they tell us that? We take it every week. Probably most churches take it monthly. My daughter knows of a church in her area that takes it one time a year. And they do a series of special services during the week leading up to the one time they take communion. uh, So that everybody is really prepared for it. And talking to her about it we, we both think that's a little weird and probably a little wrong because not only does it place too much emphasis on the one time you take it it deprives you of a means of grace the rest of the year so that's one thing I wouldn't endorse but I can't sit here and tell you it's wrong because what does the Bible says? say it says as often as you take this do this in remembrance of Jesus until He returns. The next mark of the church is prayer. They were devoted to prayer at that Pentecost church. Probably the biggest failure of every church, and I include this one, is our prayer life. Corporate prayer, personal prayer, prayer in general. But I'll bet it was not the same kind of problem for the church at Pentecost. Uh, after the events of the month before with the arrest and crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus and with the miraculous outpouring of the church at Pentecost, I'm pretty certain they uh, were driven to a vibrant, fervent prayer. After all, they were promised by Jesus just shortly before that that whatever you ask in my name... I will do it. John 14. 14. Acts 2.43 continues, And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. The Signs and wonders were God's authenticating, well, authenticating signs for the uh, ministry of the apostles. So why don't we have signs and wonders today? Wouldn't that make the... um, evangelism easier in John 4 starting in uh, verse 46 Jesus addresses addresses this so he he came again to Cana in Galilee where he had made the water wine and at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill so Jesus is back in the town of Cana where he performed his first and very prominent miracle And here now, he deals with an official. We don't know what kind, but we do know it was the officials and not the regular people of Israel that rejected Jesus. And going on, it says, When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. See, the... The truth Jesus is speaking to the man is this. Without the wedding, the miracle at the wedding of Cana, you wouldn't be here right now standing in front of me. You saw signs and wonders. And now you believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And, yes, his son survived. So the official believed. So where does that leave us? We have no apostolic signs and wonders today, no matter what anybody might tell you about uh, being slain in the Spirit or miraculous healing services. We have no apostolic signs and wonders. Later on in John 20, we see this. Now, Thomas, one of the twelve, Paul, the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And Jesus is here talking about us. Those who have not seen and yet believe we don't have apostolic signs and wonders because we don't need them we have god's word the holy scriptures instead which the early church did not have it's pretty well believed that the church formed in jerusalem uh, at pentecost in 33 ad it's earthquake records various other things uh, i did some study on this and very interesting. Only one group I see holds to 28 AD. Uh, 31 AD is pretty popular, but uh, 33 AD fits best. The book in what is our New Testament, the first book in what is our New Testament, James, was not written until about 46 AD at the earliest, maybe not until 48 AD. This is 15 years after the formation of the church. They had no written Christian testament for 15 years. The other books were mostly written between 55 and 65 A.D., 22 to 32 years after that Pentecost. And John's contribution, the Gospel of John, John uh, 1 John, Second John, Third John, and the uh, Revelation of Jesus Christ were not written until 80 A.D. to 92 A.D., 50, 60 years after the formation of the church. The point here is that the first century church largely did not have the Bible. We do. And that is more important to our faith than signs and wonders. And how do I know this? How do I know that the Bible is more important than signs and wonders? Because it's what the Holy Spirit left us with. It's all we need. We do not need signs and wonders. Back to Acts 2, verses 44 through 45. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Something common that political activists say nowadays is that Christianity affirms socialism. And they point to this passage, see? See? They had all things in common. They were communists. Well, the thing about socialism and communism is that they demand the sharing of property. Christianity does not. We're going to see a little bit later in Ananias and Sapphira when they sell some property, keep some of the money back, bring the rest to the church. And they were punished for it, but not because... Not because they didn't give all the money to the church, but because they were lying and said they did. They were punished because they were trying to puff themselves up in front of the rest of the church. As they said at the time, was this not your property? Could you not do anything with it that you wished while it was yours? But to sell it and tell the church that you gave them everything when you didn't was lying to the Holy Spirit. Socialism demands the sharing of property. Christianity does not, but, in stress, but instead stresses cheerful giving. So let's think about uh, what has been going on here. Most churches take offerings. Some cults, such as Latter day Saints, audit your books and send you a bill for your tithe. Do you know that? They do. If you are in the Church of Latter-day Saints, they tell you what you owe. Most churches take offerings, but here instead uh, we uh, receive offerings freely placed in that box in the back. So what are the offerings for? Well, for the operations of the church, for the expense of the church building, for ongoing charities, any number of things. But in that brand new church in Jerusalem where did the finances come from? All of a sudden, we have a church of 3,000 people and no structure. And what did the people do for the church? They sold their property. They brought the money to the church as offerings. It says that that they shared things in common. People who had been converted, some of them were on their feast journey At Pentecost. And they became Christians. And they stayed because where else are they going to go? They are away from their homes. There are no other churches. And they're a Christian. And so they stay in Jerusalem with nothing. And the people of the church brought, kept things in common for them. All who had need were taken care of because there was no other church to go to. probably some of those things shared in common went to the upkeep of these away from home who had no supply acts 246 through 47 reads and day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising god and having favor with all the people and the lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved and such was the church, attending temple together, breaking bread in their homes, receiving for it, receiving it with glad and generous hearts, praising God. This is a picture of a true and growing church. I started this sermon talking about getting back to the first century church. After all, what could be wrong with that? Nothing, except that it's impossible. We cannot get back to it, not just because we can't, but because we're not supposed to. The outpouring of the Spirit on everyone resulting in a supernatural outpouring of uh, property, money, and other gifts among the church was for that time, and that time only. Inevitably, that ardor would cool, and life would return to what would become... Christian order. Indeed, even by the end of the first century, the original first century church was no longer the same. As we see in 2 Corinthians, written in uh, 55 AD, just 20 years removed from the beginning of the church, Paul is taking an offering among the churches in Asia to bring back to Jerusalem Jerusalem to alleviate the poverty of the Jerusalem church. Twenty years later, what happened to the outpouring of property? I'm not saying that anything was wrong. I'm saying the supernatural outpouring couldn't go on forever. Jerusalem was a poor church. The Gentile churches in the rest of the Middle East came through and sent money to the now poor church in Jerusalem. Beyond that, if you um, go to the book, The Revelation of, the, of Jesus Christ, written in the late 1st century, what do we see but almost universal criticism of the various churches existing at that time? The church at Ephesus? You've abandoned the love you had at first. Pergamum? Some of you hold the teaching of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. Thyatira? You tolerate Jezebel, leading to sexual immorality. Laodicea, my favorite one, I will spit you out of my mouth. Which one of any of these churches should we emulate? So, if these churches are not to be emulated, how then do we worship? And what do we do to function as a church? Well, as Reformed Baptists, we believe that Scripture is our guide to how God wants to be worshipped the preaching of the Word, the reading of Scripture, the singing of psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, corporate and private prayer, the Lord's Supper, baptism. And in church operation, this passage in Acts also gives us an outline. I'm not saying to throw it away, I'm just saying it gives us an outline. Apostolic teaching. Though there are no apostles today, we have apostolic teaching as preserved for us in scriptures. Bill and I strive to present only Orthodox Christian teaching. Fellowship. This church practices fellowship at every gathering. Try and get away from us sometimes. Um, I guarantee you that no visitor goes not only ungreeted, but Greeted by all in attendance at length. We also gather for a fellowship dinner once a month. That everyone is encouraged to attend. Breaking of bread. Yes, we do. Every Lord's Day. Prayer. Beyond Lord's Day service, there is a weekly prayer meeting. Thursday evening that is open to all. This is not in any way to present this assembly as a perfect church. But we are a church that tries to hold on to the ancient guidelines the Holy Spirit instituted in, what, in that first century church almost 2,000 years ago. And now if the only the Lord would add to our number, day by day as it says, those who are being saved, I would be a happy person. And to that end, let's close in prayer.